Good morning. It was October the 2nd, 2006, where a milkman by the name of Charles Roberts barricaded himself inside of an Amish schoolhouse and opened fire. Five young girls were killed as well as six others before Charles turned the gun on himself when the police arrived at the scene. As you can imagine, this event sent shockwaves through the West Nichols Mines Amish community. But what's even more interesting, and maybe even more shocking, is that the following Saturday, the widow of Charles Roberts was at the funeral for her husband with her little children when many from the Amish community showed up to grieve with her, to hug her, put their arms around her and her children, and to mourn the loss of her husband, the husband who opened fire on their community, killing many of their own. One observer said this, It's the love, the forgiveness, the heartfelt forgiveness they have toward the family. I broke down and cried seeing it displayed. The observer added that Marie Roberts was deeply moved by the love shown. Charles Gibson of ABC News said that the Amish community takes passages from the New Testament literally, and the Amish believe that they need to love their enemies, which may be beyond the ability of most people, especially so close in time to the murders. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. What's new about that? He says, a new commandment I give to you. What's new about that? What's new about love? Love has been around since the dawn of time. Even before the Beatles sang, all you need is love. Even before Elvis sang, hunka hunka burning love. Love has been around, right? Even since the time the Supreme sang baby love or, or stop in the name of love. Love's not a new concept. So what does Jesus mean by a new commandment? We know what love is. We see it marketed in our movies, in the things that we read, books and entertainment. We see it perverted and distorted. Why is love like that that the Amish community showed Marie Roberts? Why is that so counter to our culture? Well, because by and large, our culture has bought into a cheap imitation of love. We have settled for a cheap imitation of what love actually is. Kind of like these things. Can you read that? I can't believe it's not butter and right next to it in the grocery store is butter, it's not. Or how about this one? You ever seen H&H &H peanuts with chocolate? Here's another one. How many of you ever ate Pan Burger Partner instead of Hamburger Helper? Or how about this one? That's a travesty in the state of Texas, folks. If I ever catch any of you eating or drinking Dr. Bob, I'm going to force you to come forward on Sunday. <laughs> what do all of these things have in common? They're all cheap imitations, right? They're all knockoffs of the original and pretty bad ones, really, to be honest. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. He's talking about a love so vastly superior to the imitation that so many have settled for. You see, the command to love is nothing new. It's not like we get over to the New Testament and Jesus starts commanding us to love one another. You can go back to Leviticus. 
Chapter 19, verse 18, and read these words. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the concept of loving others is not new in any, any shape or form. What is new is the covenant that Jesus came to bring, the one that will be sealed with his blood. And the greatness of this, the degree of greatness coming from the degree of the sacrifice had never happened. So this is what's new. Not only that, Jesus prefaces his words, you are to love one another with these words, just as I have loved you. That was new because they weren't loving like that. Jump over to verse 21 of John 13. It reads, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, that not one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us, who is it of whom he is speaking? And he leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him, and therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. So, twas the night before the crucifixion and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring because they were all reclining at the table. And they were all there for a purpose because this wasn't just a normal meal. This was the Passover, the Last Supper. And Judas was there. Now, you think about that for a moment. Did I lose my mic? There we go. Do you think about that for a moment? Because I think it's easy to pass over this detail that Judas was there. But remember what had just happened. Judas had just gone and sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver. He had just made a deal with the Jewish leaders so that they could arrest Jesus not too long after this supper. And so he comes and he is sitting there or reclining there at the table with Jesus and the other apostles. And I can imagine them crying and weeping as the cup is being passed, as the bread is being passed, as they partake. But it's at this supper that Jesus does something that no one expected. He washes their feet. He washes the feet even of Judas the one that he knew had just struck a deal with the Jewish leaders, the one that he knew had betrayed him, yes, he even washed his feet. He washes the disciples' feet, they take of the bread and the cup, and there's Judas right in the middle of all of it, going along, pretending as if everything was just fine, acting as though he had not just betrayed the Messiah. You think about that, isn't that disgusting? Isn't it sick? That he struck a deal to have Jesus arrested and now he reclines at the table or allows Jesus to wash his feet, partakes of the morsel and the cup as if nothing has happened. And Jesus says something very interesting in John chapter 13. After washing Judas' feet, after predicting Judas' betrayal, and after dipping the bread and giving it to Judas, 
Jesus says to him, what you do, do quickly. In other words, just get on with it. Just get on with it. I know what you've got in mind. Just do it. Just get out of here. Get out of our presence and just get on with whatever it is that you have decided to do. Now look at verses 31 and following. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another also. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then I want you to take special note of what Jesus says after he calls out Judas. Underline it, circle it, whatever in your Bible. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, at this very moment, at the very moment that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, things were set in motion, right? The Son of Man is glorified right then. Of course, it had always been set in motion, but Judas is kick-starting the proceedings of the Passion. And so Jesus is giving his apostles some final words of wisdom. And isn't it interesting that in these final words of wisdom, Jesus isn't talking about panics or rules or regulations. He's talking about love. Loving others. Loving each other and loving one another and thus glorifying the Father. Now, you have to understand that glory is a major theme in the Gospel of John. It is a thread that runs throughout. And glory here is speaking of a person's status, in particular, royalty. To be glorified means to be exalted or, or lifted up or, or given a royal position. Now, again, this thread runs throughout the Gospel of John that Jesus will be glorified, he will be lifted up, and, and thus lifting up, he will be glorified with the Father, and this glorification is going to come through death. Jesus wasn't, only, wasn't the only thing, I should say, fashioned to the cross, right? Something else was fashioned to the cross. You remember what it was? It was a sign. It simply read, King of the Jews, an auspicious sign pointing to the fact that Jesus' ascent to the throne would come through a cross, that glory would come in the unlikeliest of ways, through death on a cross, through crucifixion. Now, it's also important for us to realize that this glorification of Jesus Christ is not selfish. It's not just Jesus that's going to be glorified. We will share in this glory. Notice what Paul writes, Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, we are fellow partakers of this glory. Jesus has prepared for us a place of glory. Remember John 14, starting in verse 1 where James read from a moment ago? Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where is Jesus going? And some say, well, heaven. But that doesn't seem to fit the context. Why would he be going to prepare heaven? Heaven's been prepared since the foundation of the world. What better fits the context is he's going 
to prepare us for glory. Jesus is preparing a place for us to be in his presence. And that's not up in the cloud somewhere where we're floating around playing a harp. It's with family. He's talking about giving us a place in God's family. In fact, I know we often sing about going home to glory, but I believe Jesus is talking about more than a place here. I think he's talking relationally. I think he's talking about a presence, far more than a place. We're going to live in glory with the Father and Son, and the cross is going to make this possible. Love made it possible. Jesus washing Judas' feet is a microcosm of the love that he has for others. Even for those who would betray him, God is glorified when we love the unlovable. Why? Because it looks like Jesus. And that's why God sent his son. Yes, to rescue us from sin, but he also sent his son to show us what God looks like. No one could see God and live, but he sent Jesus to show us the heart of God, to show us what what God looks like. And he looks like love. That little word for new in the Greek means unexpected or unusual. And certainly Jesus and the love he displayed was unexpected, even unusual. For the Messiah to wash feet, for the anointed one to serve others, for the hope of Israel and all the nations to die on a cross at the hands of the enemy. That that just didn't make sense. That's not how it was supposed to go. But that's what makes this love new. It's the arrival of the glory of our Lord. And thus, it's the arrival of a new standard for all those who would call themselves Jesus' followers. We could call it tough love. You know what tough love is? This, what Jesus talked about. This is tough love, loving others. That's tough, isn't it? Not for everybody. All of us have others that we love. Not hard to love them. Many of you have many people here that you love dearly. But then there are some others that we have a tough time loving, like me and Greg Ruffin, you know. I have a tough time, don't I, Greg? Yeah. No, we we love some others really easily, and some others, they get on our nerves, they abuse our love, they take it for granted, they pervert it or twist it. So we build walls, we build fences, we draw off boundaries. Some people don't deserve our love, and rightfully so to some degree. But what's interesting about the love that Jesus talks about and that Paul reiterates over and over again in his letters to love one another, what's interesting is that you don't find stipulations, do you? You don't find conditions. There is no but or else or except or unless, only a period. Love one another. That's all it says. It's not conditional. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? We talked about it a little bit last week. A man is beaten, robbed, and left for dead on the side of the road. And the very people that should have stopped and helped, the religious folks, walked on by to the other side of the road because they didn't want to get involved. But it was a lowly, half-breed, hated Samaritan that comes on the scene that, that picks up this, this poor helpless man puts him on his beast, takes him to an inn. They you know, administer first aid and he leaves some money for the innkeeper to continue to take care of him if need be. But do you remember why Jesus told that parable? Do you remember the reason for telling it? It's the response to a question. A question by a Jewish expert in the law. 
Not, not civil law, but the Torah, the, the Jewish law. This expert asked a question, who is my neighbor? That's what prompted the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? That's a boundary question, isn't it? It's a boundary question because the expert in the law didn't want to be reckless with his love. To show love to a fellow Jew wasn't a big deal. In fact, that was commanded and he understood that. But to show love to someone who was not in his inner circle, who was not a Jew, well, that was just crazy and that was haphazard. And so he asked the question, who is my neighbor? It's a boundary question and it's the wrong question because you don't get to determine who your neighbor is. That's not your job. You don't get to define who your neighbor is. All you can do is be a neighbor. So, Jesus responds to this lawyer's question with a parable where a hated Samaritan is the hero of the story. And you can imagine what that must have meant to the person asking the question, those standing around. What the expert in Jewish law needed to comprehend, and I think what we all need to understand, is this. When it comes to loving others, you don't start with the other. Right? You don't start with the other person. You start with God. You love Him first. He loved you first. You love Him first. He's the standard. That's how we can love even the unlovable. We're commanded to love our enemies. How can we love our enemies? Well, not when you start with the enemy. Because when you start with the enemy, guess what? You, you, you think about the hurt, and you think about the offense, and you think about revenge, and you get angry. How do you love your enemies? Well, you don't start with you either. Because you've got all this pent-up anger. No, you start with God. Get Him right, and you get everything else right. Jesus commands us to love one another. He commands us to love our enemies. Can you really command love? Absolutely you can. When there's a decision to be made, you absolutely can. Now, understand, Jesus isn't commanding that you have butterflies in your stomach. He's not commanding the type of love that we often market in our society, lust, sentimentality. That's not what he's commanding. He's not talking about the cheap counterfeit. He's talking about choosing something that is authentic. He's talking about choosing the better route, God-grown love, because that's the standard. The same John who chronicled Jesus's words here in John chapter 13 is the same John who said these words, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. By this, the love of God it was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. It starts at the top. It's top button living. We've talked about this a number of times, haven't we? Guys, when you put that dress shirt on in the morning, sometimes girls do. When you put that shirt on that requires you to button it down, if you don't get that first button through the first slot, then every other button's going to be misaligned. 
And you may even go through the process and get to the bottom and go, oh, I got to start all over because I missed a slot, right? But you get the top button right. You get it through the right slot and all the others fall into place. That's top button living. You get God right, you get everything else right. You start with Him. He is the top button. You put Him through the correct slot and all the others fall into place. You know, there's a reason why loving God comes first. If you start with you, you're never going to love like Jesus. You're not built that way. You want revenge, not love. You want payback, not love. And you don't start with the other person because, like I said, that other person is the one that hurts you. And so you remember the offense and you start with that. You start with the standard. Notice the progression that John gives. Love is from God. If you know God, then you know love. God's love is evidenced through the sending of his son. John even says, this love isn't about you. It doesn't start with you. It all started with God. He sent his son when you were most unlovable. In other words, if this were an action movie, you're the villain, right? You're not the hero, not by any means. You're the villain. Jesus is the hero. And like with most action movies, the hero eventually tortures and maims the bad guys. And Jesus had every right to do that. But guess what? Jesus gets tortured and maimed by the bad guy, which doesn't make any sense. But by doing so, he gives us the opportunity to be the hero, right? And we get to be the hero. Do you remember, you remember Eliam from the Bible? He's a rather obscure character. He's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. But Eliam was a father who, like all fathers, raised a princess. He loved his daughter. And she grew into a beautiful young lady who eventually he had to let go because she married a a fine, upstanding young man. And life was bliss until one day tragedy struck. Some men came to Eliam's daughter's house while her husband was away at work, and they kidnapped her, took her to their leader, where he had sex with her, and if that wasn't bad enough, he commanded that her husband be killed, and then he kept her for himself. By the way, her husband, Eliam's son-in-law, was named Uriah, which means Eliam's daughter was Bathsheba. Which makes the powerful leader who? David. We love David. He's a beloved character in the Bible. A man after God's own heart. How do you think Eliam felt about David? How do you think Bathsheba's father felt about David for the rest of his life? Whole different perspective when you're on Eliam's side. You see... Exhibiting love is all fine and good when you're the spectator. It's a whole different deal when you're the participator. And every single one of us have been called to be participators in love. Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Folks, this is our spiritual IOU. And all of us should be more than willing to pay 
We wouldn't be here if it weren't for love, and therefore we freely share the love of Christ with those inside and outside of these walls because it's our birthmark. Brothers and sisters, neighbors, enemies, one another's should look at us and see the glory of God because we're commanded to show the love of Christ. Reminds me of the Sunday school teacher who was teaching a bunch of first graders and after explaining the Ten Commandments and the commandment about loving your mother and father or honoring your mother and father, she asked, is, is there a commandment that teaches us how to treat our brothers and sisters? And without missing a beat, one little boy raised his hand and said, yeah, you shall not murder. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's a good rule of thumb, right? If you want to love your neighbor, don't kill your neighbor. But it goes beyond that, right? Because this is more than just about rote rules and mechanics and rituals it's not just about avoiding certain behaviors. Have you ever noticed that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, after stating those two foremost commandments about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, that he says these words, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. All the law, all the prophets, everything depends on these two commandments. In other words, everything they had learned and heard up to that point all depended on what Jesus was saying and what he was about to say. You ever thought about the magnitude of that? A love for God and a love for others is the basis for everything we do, everything we are, everything that we believe. It all depends on these two things. Christianity succeeds or fails based on these two commands. Everything written within the law goes back to a love for God and a love for other people. Everything the prophets spoke of goes back to a love for God and a love for other people, which means that all of Scripture rests on these two commandments. So, you don't just get to heaven by following all the rules. Everything we do, everything we are, is predicated on the foremost commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus makes it very clear that those things are foremost in your life. Who we are, what we do, is predicated upon these things. You know, sometimes we, we fall into the trap of believing as long as I cross every T and dot every I, I'm good. I get to go to heaven. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If you love me, you keep my commandments. It starts with love. You follow the rules, not to modify behavior. You follow rules because you love me and you want to please me, right? Who you are, what you do, what you believe is saturated, predicated upon the fact that I love God with everything I have, and therefore I love other people. Those two commandments are the heartbeat of all other commandments. Everything we are, everything we do, finds its meaning and its purpose in those two commandments. You know, before COVID hit, we had a traffic problem here at Oldham Lane, didn't we? You ever try to walk down this hall before church? Sometimes... People would say to me, you know, I wish we had those, those bigger hallways that we have in the new building. And I'd think, yeah, I mean, that'd be nice. But I like the fact that we have a traffic problem at Oldham Lane. I like the fact that we bump into each other. And when we bump into each other, it sparks a conversation. It sparks a smile. Or maybe we shake hands or even hug. It's good to have a traffic problem. It's good to be bumping into each other. Because when we bump into each other, it spills out love. 
And I hope we can get back to that very soon. It's my prayer that when people hear about the Oldham Lane Church of Christ or they hear you say, you know, where do you go to church? And you say, Oldham Lane Church of Christ. It's my hope and prayer that what they know us for is not that, you know, we've got a new building, that we're located on the southeast corner of town or that we're growing. I hope that what we're known for is the fact that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourself. That we glorify God in everything that we do because we start with Him. He's the top button. And we've got Him through the proper slot, and therefore everything else falls into place. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for another day. God, thank you that we get to be together. God, we pray for all of those who who can't be with us this morning, who aren't comfortable getting out yet, those who are dealing with COVID on a very real basis, those that are helping to deal with this devastating virus. We pray for all of them, and we pray for all of those who have lost loved ones recently. And we pray that we can overcome. We pray that we can be a, a body of Christians who who follow you, who follow your will, who seek to please you in all that we do. And we pray that we can be saturated with love, that it defines us, that it motivates us, that it compels us, and that it changes us. God, thank you for who you are and what you're making us into. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, can we help you this morning? David's going to lead us in a song. If you need the prayers and support of this church family. Maybe you're ready to study the Bible with someone. Maybe you're, maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. Whatever your need is, David's going to lead us. Why don't you come? So we stand and as we sing.